Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, we're focusing on BC real estate, starting with a look at the province's recreational property market. And a little later on, we're going to get a developer's perspective on the city's Canby Corridor redevelopment strategy, which has just had its third phase approved by City Council. You're listening to BIV Today. The weather we've been seeing here in Vancouver no doubt has people thinking about the lake, the beach, a visit to the cabin, or a recreational property elsewhere in B.C., The B.C. government's speculation tax on vacant second properties may also be on the minds of those with vacation homes in, say, Kelowna. Remax has just published their 2018 Recreational Property Report, which highlights some interesting trends behind what's driving the market. And today we're joined by Elton Ash, Regional Executive Vice President at Remax Western Canada, to walk us through the report. Elton, thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Great to be with you. Year over year, what would you say is the biggest change you've seen in BC's recreational property market? Well, certainly the trending that we've seen in past years, of course, is that boomers have always been very interested in recreational property. The surprise for us this year is the veracity of that demand. In past years, we've seen about 55% of the market being driven by boomers. Uh, We're now seeing up up over 90% of the market now being driven by that demographic segment, which really shows a, a huge interest in that demographic area looking for recreational property. Is this the boomer generation cashing in on very valuable homes in, say, markets like Vancouver and moving elsewhere? Well, certainly when you look at Vancouver or Toronto, with the escalation of pricing that we've seen and many in areas, older areas, especially core city areas, where people have owned their homes for 30 or 40 years, uh, making some great gains. But, you know, really it's being driven by, they're retiring, but but why they're buying recreational property isn't so much cashing in on that principal residence they've owned, but in... in uh, um, providing them the opportunity to pursue their passions. You know, boomers have worked uh, 30, 40 years in their careers and, and certainly enjoyed, majority have enjoyed it, but now they have the opportunity to be perhaps a little more entrepreneurial, uh, get into a vineyard or, or do a, and with technology the way it is today, they, they can pursue sort of a, a secondary uh, career that they have a great love for, and they can do it uh, in a great environment like a recreational property area. Are we seeing more and more of the uh, the recreational um, owner um, coming from a nearby jurisdiction? So BCers staying in BC for their recreation property? Well, certainly from, and, and we've seen this over the decades, is that people prefer to be within a two to three hour drive mm-hmm. of, of where they've typically lived in the past. Now, the difference here, of course, is that they're selling their principal residence and going to be living full time in the area. But of course, their social circles are still back where they've been over the years. And so with the escalation of recreational prices, we've seen that drive time extend. You know, 15, 20 years ago, two hours was sort of the limit. Well, now we're seeing three to three and a half hours as that drive time limit to where they want to go. Interesting. Um, how active would you say international buyers are in a recreational property market like BC? 
Uh, it's minimal. I, I, we see, especially U.S. buyers uh, from the state of Washington, uh, looking at the ski resorts. Whistler, of course, is a great example of that. Big white, silver star in the interior. Uh, we see that in Ontario and Quebec, uh, in Mont Tremblant, and a little bit in Muskoka's. But, uh, but really, it is, a, it is an at-home environment with people looking at rec property. It's a it's called a speculation tax, but I'm not sure I've yet caught the caught wow. the reason caught the reason why. <laughs> so we so could I, debate the so-called yeah. speculation tax. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so let's uh, let's agree to agree <laughs> um, on that one. Um, but what do you think has been the impact already of of a tax like this, not just on those property owners that have property that are, are now uh, subject to it? But even on just the the optimism in the market, well, the optimism—that's that, that, a key phrase. Because whenever you introduce measures, even though this tax isn't uh, proposed to be implemented till the fall, you introduce uncertainty into the market. And whenever you introduce uncertainty, you get pullback on on buyer demand and and seller uncertainty for for that. Uh, matter matter as well. So uh, it has had a detrimental effect to the entire British Columbia market. Now, to be fair, we've also had other uh, circumstances come into the market. The increased uh, mortgage qualification for for uh, conventional mortgages has also had a, a negative effect to the market. Um, but overall, it hasn't been the spe- the so-called speculation tax has not been a healthy situation for the BC real estate market. So, what are the zones then of the province where you would say there are um, that it might be a bit of a buyer's market because it, these properties are still selling at pretty significant prices? And you know, where where are the bargains? Do you think? In the province, well, yeah, and although unit sales are down, we're still seeing increase in average price yeah. uh, across the board, and so we're, you know, where this tax, of course, is focused is Vancouver and Victoria and Nanaimo, Kelowna, West Kelowna, um, and when I say Vancouver, the entire Lower Mainland, but the, uh, you know, I don't, the market is in a transition right now. We're seeing inventory levels increase. The April numbers were certainly more negative than the first quarter. Um, and so it, it's hard to say if there's any deals at this point in time. Uh, and, you know, talking about the boomer segment of the market, many of these homes have been owned uh, for many years are high equity. In fact, there's probably nothing owing on these homes. And so they can ride out any sort of uncertainty at this point in time. There's no forced selling in general terms out there. You mentioned at the start that really you're seeing retirees want to buy a, a second home and not necessarily cash in or sell their primary residence. But is there a trend of people maybe moving to what would have been seen as recreational destinations for their primary residence? Well, and, and when you talk about Kelowna as, a, as an example, as a recreational destination, the type of recreational property has changed dramatically in the last 15 years. I mean, we all had this vision of a of a cabin, you know, at, at the lake sh- lake shore, listening to the loons. Uh, today, recreational property are condominiums in a lot of cases, uh, in towers uh, right on the lake in Kelowna, or just a, you know across the the street. So. 
that's that's where there's been big shift as to what defines recreational property. Certainly, the Shushwap and Thompson area, the Caribou, uh, Harrison Lake, you know, uh, it, it are still extremely popular. But you know, the, the other thing we're seeing are the millennials wanting to get into the recreational property, and, and that's where the condominiums more affordable appeals. Yeah, is is there now more of a combination of um, a condominium owner? and a recreational property owner than, say, there were uh, 10 or 15 years ago? Oh, for sure. And, of course, going back to technology and changing things, the Airbnb, VRBO uh, segment of the market, you can buy these properties now and, and then rent them out relatively easily when you're not there. Mm-hmm. And and so looking at these properties as an investment has also increased in recent years. You mentioned that inventory levels are, are starting to tick upward, but looking out over the course of, say, the next several years, by how much is supply going to increase and, and will we still see some constraints? You know, I hit, that's crystal ball gazing and it's difficult. Right now in Vancouver, we're still seeing a huge demand for a condominium product and, and uh, the builders uh, are reacting with that with new projects. Uh, all Ultimately, over the years, and I've been in this business 30 plus years, we see these cycles come and go, and and what typically causes them is a because it takes so long to build a, a large project. You're talking, you know, eight to ten years of planning and zoning requirements and all that sort of thing. That it, it when you build something, it's something that started, as I say, eight eight years ago, uh, kind of guessing ahead of the market, but. You know, given the strength of the BC economy uh, in general, and the des- and the desire people have to move to British Columbia, um, you know, I think long term it's it's going to be a healthy situation. But we are it's going to the, the market will cycle. There'll be some sawtooth moments where there'll be some price retractions, but I don't think they're going to be all overly great in the near future. But Elton, uh, might we start to see if we're not already seeing it some of the same? Um I wouldn't call it desperation, but the same anxiety that creeps into a market when it worries that it's never going to get in, so it's got to get in now. Yeah, you know, that, um, and market cycles are never caused by factual circumstance, so to speak. It's like the stock market when you get runs, right? It, It goes on passion and where people, how people feel. And and right now, with the uncertainty, people are feeling anxious on both sides of a transaction, whether it's just to get into your first home before prices escalate further, or from a seller perspective, what's going to happen if this tax does come in, and how will that affect my the value of my home? And is, and is gov- that government? Is, go ahead. Is, no, is that starting to uh, to get into the recreational property area too, where people are going? You know, I I want a recreational property. I want a retirement property of some sort. But man, if I wait, if I wait three, four years, I'm not getting in. That's true. Um, since such a great extent of that market is driven by boomers, and boomers plan these purchases out, no matter what the market does, they're getting into the market because they plan for it. And typically, it's a relative scenario. If their home goes up, rec property goes up, you know, or goes down, both kind of parallel each each other. And so from, a, from an ownership point of view, it, it's not as great a concern in the recreational property area. Okay. Interesting. Elton, really appreciate you joining us on the show to walk us through the latest report. Thanks for coming on.
You're welcome. Anytime. That's Elton Ash, Regional Executive Vice President at REMAX Western Canada. We're going to be back in a moment to talk about Vancouver's Canby Corridor Strategy. The third phase of the Canby Corridor Development Plan was approved by City Council earlier this month. The entire plan is designed to address growth through to 2041, and Phase 3 specifically looks at opening more than 1,700 single-family lots up to other forms of housing. Joining us now to talk more about the plan is Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development over at Cressy Development Group. As always, Jason, thanks for joining us. Always my pleasure. Is it possible to fathom and properly prepare for the demand we're going to see over the next couple of decades? I thought by 2041, we're going to have like uh, jetpacks and uh, yeah. uh, Star Trek airships trans- and Star Trek transporter. <laughs> and- <laughs> we won't need homes, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe that'll help with the traffic. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, is it possible? Well, these are the kinds of things we need to be doing to, to plan for it. Um, you know, uh, You know, if you look at... You know, to, to understand where we're going, you, you need to look at sort of the the other cities that they're a little older than ours that have that have uh, seen this kind of growth and then have accommodated these kind of numbers and that are that are dense in in the way that we are by virtue of our our constraints and um, you know the amount of land that is occupied by the single family home in our city is still a, a really high percentage and uh, you know that's you know if we want to accommodate growth that's going to have to change. Well, it, that's the if that I, I want to ask you about, though. Do we actually have to accommodate growth? Is there any way that we could just say the city's large enough? Let's just live with this. Well, I would suggest that our entire economy is built around uh, growth, and yeah. when we stop growing, we have a major problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and at some point, some generation will have to figure out how to have a sustainable economy without, uh, you know, a significant growth rate, but. Um, uh, we're not there right now. So yeah, we, we need growth and we need to accommodate people. And certainly, uh, you know, as the, as the earth you know, continues to grow, we've got, we've got room in our country to accommodate people. So we, uh, we have to do our part here. So the development, construction, real estate economy is essential. We're, we're dependent on it, really. Well, I don't think it's just the development you know, uh, industry. I think our entire economy is, is fundamentally based on growth, which means you, know, uh, you, know, you need people to spend more, but you also need more people to spend. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I absolutely think that uh, we need to continue to accommodate people moving here. When you look at other jurisdictions, as you mentioned, that are maybe comparable, but older and have gone through similar levels of growth. How does what's slated for the city of Vancouver compare? And are, are we sort of meeting the mark, so to speak? Well, I think the big difference about, you know, the era that our city is seeing this level of, of growth, and, and, and it has seen, you know, certainly percentage-wise, you know, major uh, major growth periods in the past. I think the big difference now is that we are doing it in, in an age uh, of the uh, obviously internet and computer and social media. And so it's, it's a much different type of growth than any, than I think we've seen before. And there's other cities going through it as well. We're not, we're not alone, but it's a different process. It's, it's far more involved. It's far more, yeah, there's a lot more consultation and public involvement and, you know, that's great, but it does, the, the result of that is that it happens at a much slower pace than probably it could, or maybe even should, you know, if you're, you're, you're to ask me honestly, um, um, but that's the reality of the world we live in. You know, everybody's involved and, and everybody has a voice by virtue of a, of a smartphone. And um, so it's a, it's a, it's a different, um, 
uh, a different process than we've probably ever experienced before. You would know, of course, about uh, the public uh, demand for um, additional housing stock to accommodate uh, the varying needs that had take place in the city. Might we expect, though, that as we're planning our community over the next while and looking for longer-term uh, development strategies, that the gap might actually widen between the demand and the supply? Well, it, it, it quite, quite frankly, it could. Um, and, and the reason I say that is that, as, as you know, you know, growth is, is kind of an exponential curve. It is, it is not necessarily linear. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would suggest that, um, so, so that, that, that sort of explains, you know, the trend on the demand side or, or the expected trend. But unfortunately, we are not able to exponentially increase supply. And if anything, it, it, it like you know, for reasons that I just touched on and, and others, um, supply is constrained. You know, and so we could, yeah, I mean, it could continue even though we have you know these plans, um, you know, you know, they get approved and and are certainly you know the, the variety of housing. I think it's the right type of housing in the Canby Area Three plan. I think that's a really key piece to this puzzle, you know, is the type of housing they're approving or, or the plan is, is, is supporting. Um, but, but we still have to get it built and get through the individual entitlements on the sites and deal with, you know, things like servicing constraints and all that. Uh, and so, you know, until we actually get shovels in the ground and buildings getting built, it, it's not a whole lot of use to the, uh, to the people uh, looking for housing. It's clear that this plan is not strictly just about addressing supply. It also has provisions for, say, parks, recreational spaces, transportation, and the constraints that are going to be placed in transportation as a result of new supply. Is this neighborhood community building approach the right approach to take, do you think? Oh, yeah, for sure. You, you have to give, um, you know, if you're, if you're going to densify neighborhoods, they need to come with amenities and they need to come with services. and and certainly the transportation aspect needs to be addressed too. You know, we need to, we need to do a better job, frankly, than we are right now of, of moving people around. And, and certainly, you know, some of the initiatives that, that are on the table now uh, with uh, rapid transit expansion and promotion of, you know, walking and biking, those are all good things, but uh, you know, that's, it's a problem that will continue to, uh, to need attention. Um, but things like parks and community centers are, are absolutely critical to having people live in more dense environments where they don't have necessarily the backyard to run around in or the front yard or the back lane, for that matter. Yeah. Um, you have to support that to make them livable. And so I think that, uh, you know, when, when I look at the plan, it seems to have a lot of those great elements to it that, that will make it a very livable community. But it will take uh, it will take many, many years for this thing to to see itself through. I think probably one of the one of North America's most ambitious developments in the next while will be what's going to be built up around the area that we now commonly call Oak Ridge mm. and, um, and what we're going to see there in the way of a, almost a city within a city. Tell us about what kind of model that uh, is like, Jason, and whether there are possibly some other applications of it elsewhere in the city. Yeah, I mean, that, that certainly seems to be... Uh you know, a development on a, on a, on a different scale than what we've seen here. I mean, a lot of what we see in Vancouver, because it's, uh, you know, our street grid and, and, and sort of the way our city was, was laid out is, is more infill style development, but we are seeing some redevelopment right now of some major, major pieces, whether it be the, uh, uh, the transit lands, uh, you know, on off Oak there or, uh, on his develop redevelopment of the Pearson dogwood lands. And then uh, certainly West bank over at, uh, at Oak Ridge, I mean, these are major, major 
um, projects with you know, not hundreds but thousands of units. Um, and uh, that, you know, Oak Ridge in particular, um, what I've seen of that, I mean, if they can pull that off, that's a that's a yeah, it is a city within itself. And uh, you know, I don't know if it's a trend. Um, it certainly requires a very robust uh, marketplace to support. Uh, absorption of those kinds of units in a pre-sale environment to, to you know to get those projects off the ground and recent history uh, certainly has proven that that's that's the case so uh, you know I wish them the best and uh, it'll be interesting to follow that one. Is this project going to put a dent at all in in affordability issues and help bring about affordable housing? Uh, no, no, not not at all. Uh, th- those projects uh, when when you see a project that that looks like that and and. Uh, I mean, it looks amazing, but to to get that built and the and all of the complexities and you know intricacies and frankly the 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 level of design and execution that will be a very expensive proposition. And so with that comes a very expensive price tag. Yeah. And uh, so no, those I mean those those types of projects look great, and certainly there's a there's a place for them, you know, to to uh, you know kind of be feature landmarks in our city, but that's that's not that project specifically is not really the type of housing that is going to address affordability. It's more of the, uh, in my opinion, you know, the, the element of the plan that, that is pushing for townhome ground oriented units. We need places for young families to be able to stay in the city so that we have a, we have a, you know, a, a, an economy within the city where people, you know, aren't commuting back and forth and they can live and work, you know, in relative proximity and, uh, that doesn't happen in, in, in the kind of redevelopment we're going to see at Oak Ridge, but it certainly does in, in ground-oriented townhome units, which are a big part of that uh, phase three plan. But you would know as well as anybody, Jason, that land value in this community is such that it is becoming increasingly difficult, maybe even close to impossible, to build that that type of housing um, in a community like this uh, where where there's such pressure on um, you know on, on your margins if you're going to try it. Well, there's no question about that. I mean, p- part of the issue is, yeah, for sure, the single-family home is 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 worth so much. You know, it's it's such a high price tag. So to assemble lots and put together, uh, you know, to put together viable sites to redevelop in townhome form or, or, or really any kind of form in that neighborhood, the land value is is extremely high. And that's my big my big uh, concern around this plan. And, and you know, in part, it's it's a result of how how long these plans take to develop and how the speculative buying happens way in advance. Uh, yeah. I mean, there have been people assembling sites and putting together development properties and, you know, uh, realtors or, or developers out there tying up sites for years. I mean, this has only recently been approved, but it's but it's been on the table for so long that, uh, that, that there just becomes a bit of a run on these things. And, you know, my concern around the plan is just how how crazy these values got to and what it will require developers to sell for in order to make it viable. And, uh, you know, so you're going to be looking at townhomes, which are, you know, are quite expensive. But nonetheless, we need them because, you know, there will be a market to sell those townhomes. And that takes those buyers out of a, a market that might be slightly more affordable. And, and the trickle effect goes, goes down the line. So you, you still need the supply, although it will be, uh, it will be a pretty penny. I, I hear you on the young family side, of course, we, because they are going to be in a lot of ways generating the wealth uh, over the next while that will pay for a lot of the services uh, that older people will will need. But I also wonder where's the seniors' housing coming from? Where? Yeah, I mean that's uh, there are certainly some groups around that specialize. I mean it's a very specialized 
type of, of housing because it requires service. And that's not something that just, uh, that, that, that all developers are, are doing. Uh, there are some groups that are, they're active in doing it, but I think, you know, it's, it's going to become, um, higher in demand. Uh, you know, the, the trouble is we, we've got these, you know, this group we all know as the, as the baby boomers and, uh, you know, there's a there's going to be a, a slowdown behind them, and so you, uh, I, I think there's some 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 hesitation around, you know, building all these facilities, having the baby boomers move through, and then it actually being oversupplied. So, and and not to mention that, that a lot of seniors, you know, it, it seems are, are are in better health perhaps as they get older than they used to be, and and are are, are looking to stay in their home even longer than maybe we expected. So. You know, I, that's a tricky question, and I'm no expert on the on the seniors' health, housing development market. But uh, um, yeah, it's it's a specialized a specialized group that are doing that, and it's a challenging uh, challenging goal. Fair enough, Jason. As always, we appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, guys. That's Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. And that's it for our show today. Thanks for joining us on BIV today. Subscribe and find our past episodes on iTunes and at BIV.com. Mention that uh, put five stars beside it. It always helps us. Thanks a lot for listening. 